0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.
1: In the late 12th century, Peter of Blois wrote to Reginald, Bishop of Bath, this is what he said However, dogs may bark at me and pigs grunt. I shall always imitate the writings of the ancients. These shall be my study. We are like dwarfs on the shoulders of giants by whose grace we see farther than they. Our study of the works of the ancients enables us to give fresh life to their finer ideas and rescue them from time's oblivion and man's neglect. I like that. Church history can be a very dreary thing for some people. In fact, I've talked to some students who've come up to me and they say, Oh, I just, church history, man, you just can't get any more arid than that. (laughs) They didn't say arid, but you know what I mean. Uh, I think that church history has value. Now, I would say that. But let me give you some reasons why I would say that. This is meant, in case you don't get the point, it's meant to encourage you. Now, you've all heard the saying, haven't you? Those who are ignorant of the past are doomed to repeat it. I think there's a lot of truth to that. By the way, we are here in preliminary remarks. Unless you know the mistakes of the past... There is always the possibility that you can make those same mistakes if you're not aware. I gave this illustration, I think, last year, and I'd like to give it again. When I was in Philadelphia in seminary, I was uh, attending a church, and I sat in a Sunday school class. And there was a very fine and, as Dr. Kidd says, a very sincere fellow uh, leading the Sunday school class, and he asked the question, sort of threw it out for everybody to to take a shot at it. He asked them what they thought about the person of Christ. How do you, he said, understand that? And I sat very quietly on the back row, and I heard every ancient heresy repeated in that classroom by evangelical Christians. All of whom were well educated. All gone to college, and some of whom had already had, had master's degrees. Uh, church history can help us avoid false teaching. Uh, if you've been in evangelical circles, uh, I fear that that there are. A lot of folks, well-intentioned, sincere, godly Christians who say terrible things inadvertently because they don't have a sense of what Christianity as a whole has taught down through the ages. And so church history can help reel us in and help us to avoid bad theology. A second value of church history. Can you imagine what it would be like to sit in a classroom with Augustine to talk to you about the doctrine of original sin? Can you imagine what that would be like? Or to sit in a classroom and to listen to Anselm talk about the atonement What what an exciting privilege. You know what? You can do that. A few centuries have passed, but by going back to their writings, by reading what they had to say, you can sit at the feet of some of the greatest pastors and teachers that God, I underscore that, that God has given the church. There is great wisdom in the past. Men, and I want to say this, and women who have done and said wonderful things. And we, in the 20th century, can benefit from their experiences, from their insights, from their wisdom. I love the idea of thinking that I'm sitting at the feet of Augustine when I read him. That's a wonderful image to me. And you can have the same privilege. We can do it. Don't let a little thing like a thousand years get in the way. It doesn't have to. And church history can help us overcome that. A third value. The knowledge of church history can help us set theological boundaries. It's not often admitted by evangelicals. But we believe in tradition. Yes, we do. And tradition does have value for us today. Now, of course, I don't mean to suggest for a moment that tradition is somehow on a par with the authority of Scripture. It is not. But church history, tradition of the church, can serve as a theological reference point for us. An example, if there's a pastor who one day decides that when he reads the New Testament that there are nine persons in the Godhead, a knowledge of church history would help this person. It would remind this person that never before in the long history of nonsense has anyone ever said that. And that ought to give pause. That maybe, maybe I'm stepping outside the boundaries here and I ought to really rethink my exegesis. So church history can be of help in setting theological reference points for us. Again, I am not suggesting that the church has always been right about everything. Uh, There are clear examples where where I would judge that's not the case. But generally speaking... Church history can, can help us. It's valuable. It's valuable to pastors. Uh, I, I can't imagine a pastor who wouldn't love church history. It's illustrations. It's encouragement. If you're a pastor and you're struggling in a church, uh, the people don't seem to be getting it. You read church history and you can see how other folk have labored through tough times. And you see how God blesses. Uh, That's encouragement. That's real encouragement. So I I think this stuff has value value to to pastors and to missionaries, to all of us. Another thing that I like to mention about church history is that it's exciting I mean, it is more dramatic than Murder, She Wrote. Because it's, it's the story of people who are killing and being killed. There's, there's blood and guts everywhere. It's great fun. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say it that way. Uh, it's exciting to read about people who are willing to lay their life on the line. That's exciting stuff. To look at the rise and fall of empires. Heroic men and women. I'm going to tell you about some of those. To look at some cowardly failures. All of that is just terribly interesting and exciting. To my mind, church history is is really the story of men and women who changed the course of history and if we read their story perhaps we can find out how it's done how we can change the course of history i am an i'm an optimist i think we can make progress all is not lost and that brings me to my fifth point about the value of church history church history gives us a broader perspective on the church and it gives us cause for optimism. So very often we hear pessimistic voices that the church is in dire straits, and it is in many respects. We hear that things cannot get much worse. We talk about moral decline. But church history reminds us that things have been bad before. It reminds us that, yes, there are abortions today, and that's a terrible, terrible thing. But in the past, there have been situations where there were child sacrifices. In the past, we know that in some religions... Young children were made temple prostitutes. Things have been bad before. And church history gives us a little sense of perspective. Things are bad now, but things have been bad before. And we ought not to be overwhelmed by the present. Church history reminds us not to be consumed with pessimism. Our God is a powerful God. And He is moving history toward His goals. And ultimately, the goal will glorify Him when it is attained. Church history reminds me of that. God has brought about revivals in times when you wouldn't expect it, but He's done it. So, for a reformed person, church history is a cause for optimism. Despite acts of terrorism, the presidency of Bill and Hillary Clinton, (laughs) economic woes, Roe versus Wade, Bosnia, Somalia, the Middle East, God is sovereign over history. And an understanding of church history, I think, reminds us of that, to see how he has worked through these things. It is God who establishes rulers and kings. It is He who brings them down. Nebuchadnezzar understood that very, very well. Church history from a Reformed perspective reminds us that this world is not out of control. Church history from a Reformed perspective inspires hope. And it encourages us to active participation in church history. Well, those are my five, six, seven reasons why I think church history is valuable for all of us. And, I, and again, I, I, I say all of that to encourage you. This is valuable stuff. This isn't just a required course. It's that, but it's so much more. Uh, my approach you'll find as I go through the course, has two basic elements. It's biographical and theological. I always like to include something about the life when I can of a a great individual. I think that's helpful. I like to know how that person lived. Uh, it's, It's one thing to know. There's a famous modern theologian... He's dead now. But uh, very famous, very influential. But it was very interesting for me to discover that he was a pornographer. He just loved to read pornography. Now, that affects the way I look at the man's teaching. Uh, it's, it's, so for me, I like to have something about the man's life or the woman's life, whatever it may be. Uh, as well as what he taught and what he believed. Okay, introduction. We are now in intro. Now, generally speaking, this course is divided into two major sections. The early church and the medieval church. So, introduction. By the year 100 A.D., Christianity was on the move. It was strongly represented in Asia Minor. Roughly speaking, that's the area of Turkey today. Christianity was represented in Syria, Macedonia, Greece, Rome, and probably Egypt. And of course... Uh, these regions correspond very well with the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. We know partly uh, where Christianity had extended to from looking at the book of Acts. We see that in the cities mentioned there in Asia Minor, cities like Lystra and Derbe and Ephesus, in Syria, Antioch, Macedonia, Philippi, and in Greece, Athens, and of course Rome. Now, I mentioned some of this geographical sort of information. First, just to orient you a little bit about how Christianity is expanding, uh, beginning now with the second century. And secondly, to mention to you that Christianity is politically correct, at least early Christianity. It was not at first a Western religion it was an eastern religion ancient near eastern of course christianity developed and particularly as it came comes to us in the united states comes from the west from western europe but originally christianity was a religion of the ancient near east and it spread first to asia minor before it ever got to the west we have hardcore evidence beyond the new testament that Christianity was expanding. In the correspondence between Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, who was the governor, the Roman governor, in Bithynia, which is in northern Turkey, he wrote a letter to the emperor of the Roman Empire, Trajan. And in the letter, Pliny indicates that Christianity is has certainly emerged into his area in northern Turkey. And essentially, he sees Christianity as a nuisance. Uh, But one that he thinks he's got to keep his eye on because it seems to be growing, attracting attention from people. Pliny assures the Roman emperor that he can handle this new cult. And And he promises that he will. So what was this this new Christianity, this new religion called Christianity. First thing I want to look at in the early church life, I want to look at the church organization. That's point A under one, the early church life of the church. I want us to get a sense, a feel for what the church was like. And we're going to look... First, at how it was organized, and then we we'll want to look at the worship service. What actually happened in a church? Now, probably one of the most controversial questions when it comes to the early church has to do with the origin and development of the church organization itself. And the problem with the early church organization is that Not all of the early churches had the same organization at the same time. That is to say that the development was not entirely uniform. Some churches developed in different ways than other churches. And it took a while before there was some sort of norm in the the church organization. Obviously, the first expression of church polity... The organization of the church, is seen in the fact that Christ chose 12 disciples, 12 disciples, 12 apostles, to be leaders over his followers. And it will be no surprise to discover that those 12 apostles then went out and subsequently chose other persons, other church leaders, and certainly under the Inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this took place. And these leaders, chosen by the apostles, exercised authority over the local churches. Now, here's where the confusion comes in. There is real confusion about whether or not there were three offices in the early church or just two. Some of the churches, it appears, early on had three officers. A bishop, a presbytery, a group of elders, and deacons. Other churches only seem to have two offices, a group of elders and the deacons. What is clear, and this is the issue about which there is no confusion is that by the middle of the second century, the threefold office was the norm in most churches. That is to say that most churches had a single head, namely a bishop, a local church now, by the middle of the second century. So we're talking by about 150 A.D., now, a couple of observations about this question of bishops and presbyters-elders dash and deacons. First of all, the word bishop, episkopos, the word presbyterios, and diakonos, the the deacons. All of those are biblical words. So, from whatever perspective uh, these are need to be recognized as biblical words. A second observation. There does seem to be a significant amount of influence from the Jewish synagogues on the organization of the early Christian churches. They didn't just suddenly organize a church. They had an historical And religious context. Namely Judaism. And they borrowed from it. I think there is really little doubt about that. And. It's pretty clear. That Jewish synagogues. Generally had. An overseer. And. There is. Little doubt. That the early Christian churches. Followed the basic pattern of what they knew. Namely. Moving toward a Sort of centralized, uh, where there a centralized church government, where there is one person moving, uh, ruling over the church. A couple of interpretive problems for us today as we look at this situation. Part of the problem is because the New Testament uses the word bishop interchangeably with the word elder or, presby- or uh, presbyter. It seems that the same word, bishop, means presbyter in a number of cases. So it's hard, then, to understand how this all works together. It should be also noted that the term bishop is always used in the plural, which suggests more than one. which suggests that the bishop is a member of a group of rulers or perhaps a presbytery. Another comment to make is that in the early non-canonical writings, that is, those writings that are not in the New Testament, some writings outside the New Testament, it seems to be clear that there was a plurality of elders just like there was in the Jewish synagogue and that these elders or presbyters were democratically elected by the congregation now here's a key point the first witness to what is called mono episcopacy sometimes called monarchical, the monarchical bishop. Let me spell that just in case you don't spell very well. Mono, M-O-N-O, episcopacy, E-P-I-S-C-O-P-A-C-Y. Or you'll find it in the literature also called the monarchical bishop. The first witness to the idea of a single bishop ruling over at the head of a group of elders, which then ruled over the deacons, and over the congregation as a whole. Oh, I spelled it up there. Good. Comes from Ignatius of Antioch. Have I spelled that too? No. Ignatius. I-G-N-A-T-I-U-S. Ignatius of Antioch. And he's writing in the period from about 110 to 117. So this is very early in the second century where we have... An unimpeachable evidence for the existence of a single bishop ruling over uh, at the head of a group of elders from one ten to one seventeen. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to. This is what we're talking about now. Is over one church. We're not talking about a diocese or anything like that. We're talking about. A single person at the head of a local church. Now, part of the situation here needs to be understood that in many cities there was only one church. Okay, so that needs to be borne in mind as we as we uh, think about this. Monarchical bishop, and this is this idea. First, we have the first witness to the existence of. A single bishop of a local church from Ignatius of Antioch. Now, what's interesting about the information provided by Ignatius is that he identifies himself as the bishop of Antioch. The one and only. And he exalts the authority of the bishop over the elders, and deacons, and the congregation. So first, he identifies himself as the bishop. Again, let me underscore that the evidence is sketchy here. And that's why scholars are a little bit uh, hesitant to make absolute statements, just like this one. So, Ignatius says, I'm the bishop of Antioch. But Ignatius does something else. He identifies four other bishops of other cities and churches. He mentions by name four other bishops who preside over their local churches in different cities. So, assuming that Ignatius is telling us the truth, then that is clear evidence by the early second century that this threefold office is beginning in some regions to exist early, early on. A third thing, Ignatius says he's a bishop and then he mentions by name four other bishops. A third thing Ignatius does is he says, and I'm not the first bishop of Antioch. He says there was one before him. Or at least he implies that. Now, one thing that's also notable, a 4th subpoint here about the monarchical bishop as it developed early now in the 2nd century, is although he's on his way to Rome when he writes these, this series of letters, he does not mention a bishop of Rome. He does not mention a bishop of Rome, which perhaps suggests... That in Rome the threefold office at this point had not developed. We can't be sure, but it, but it may suggest that. There's no question but that Rome was was a significant Christian city at this point. But he, if if there is a single bishop in Rome, Ignatius doesn't know about it. Scholars speculate, surmise that this may suggest then. That, there was, that the threefold office had not, at this stage, developed in Rome. One thing it is fairly clear to say here is that Ignatius does not seem to suggest any sort of idea of apostolic succession, that he is somehow succeeding uh, as a bishop, uh, the apostles, and with the same kind of authority. Ignatius's main concern is to promote and encourage unity among the various Christian churches. And he feels that the best way this unanimity and the unity among the Christians who are under fire because Ignatius writes these letter letters as a man who has been condemned to death. And so these are his parting shots, really. David Uh, well, the canon was not complete at this time, not the full, the full New Testament around canon. One, one yeah, canon doesn't come to fruition fully until 4th century. So we're talking real early. You, you know, I'm going to talk about the theology at this time, but it's one of the things that's kind of striking is that they don't seem to have it all together. They're not precise theological thinkers at this point, by and large. There are a few exceptions on a few exceptional kinds of things, but by and large, it's uh, a lot of things are are not clear. I mean, it took it took the church historically about three, four centuries to resolve and to come up with the Trinity, to deal with that in a a doctrinal way. Now there are evidences of that before, but to come up with a formula uh, took about four centuries. So this is a period of time in which the church is defining itself and what it believes. So there are lots, and and the evidence, of course, is is very hard to get at because there's not a lot of it. In fact, you're going to be reading uh, a good portion of the evidence that we have. At any rate, uh, Ignatius is, is basically trying to say and I think at this point, there's a functional kind of orientation to what Ignatius is saying. Now, he, he does, I think it's clear, and you, you'll look at uh, some of the readings, you, you can look at that, and you can decide for yourself whether he makes some clear uh, spiritual claims. But he's trying to focus on unity in the churches and keep them organized together. Finally, a comment about the deacons. Uh, there's little question but that they are subordinate to the presbytery the presbyters and the bishop they too were democratically elected and as I've already mentioned their primary function was the dispensing of charity to the poor it's very very interesting to me as I think about this that the concern for the early church for the poor was a distinguishing characteristic of the early church Uh, certainly true of the the apostles as well. Paul himself is very mindful of the poor. And I wonder, I wonder if in our day and age our churches have, have in some measure lost sight of that function of the church that it's become so easy for us to say let the government handle those kinds of things. And that we somehow don't take as seriously as we ought uh, the simple concern for the poor. I know it's it's obviously in our day and age it's a a very difficult job. But at some level, it just strikes me that that's a, a very distinctive feature of the early church, concern for the poor. Finally, as you are probably aware, there is some debate as to whether or not women were deaconesses. Uh, evangelicals differ on this question. But there are two passages. Uh, the two key passages are Romans 16, 1. There Paul refers to a lady in the church. Her name is Phoebe. And the word he uses to describe her is uh, the same word used for deaconess or for deacon. And the other passage is 1 Timothy 3.11. And there in the passage, Paul is clearly talking about the various uh, officers of the church. He talks about elders there, and he talks about deacons, and then he talks about uh, women and their roles. And some scholars have gone to that, that passage in the 11th verse of the third chapter And they think it teaches that the women had a formal role as a deaconess. So, that is a subject that you might find interesting to develop. I mention it because uh, the early church did not, from what I can tell, appreciated the role and ministry of women. So... I'll leave it to you to decide the question about deaconesses. Now, here's the bottom line question that I'm trying to get at in this this section. And this is the crucial question about which there is much debate. Did bishops have apostolic origin? That is, did the apostles articulate... Uh, and describe and establish a bishop or were bishops a non-apostolic but natural development from the the presbyters that is the key question does it have an apostolic origin is it biblical did the the apostles address themselves to this question or is there a more a more organic kind of natural development out of the presbyters one thing i will note is that jerome the writer of the, of the latin vulgate who died in about 419 so early 5th century so he's much closer to the situation than we are jerome explicitly states that the early churches were governed by a council of elders originally. That is to say, the twofold office. And then, fairly soon, it developed so that one of those elders came to be recognized as the leader of the group of elders, the president, if you will. And that in the course of time, That developed naturally into what is called the bishop, into a threefold office. Jerome seems to clearly articulate a development from a twofold office to a threefold office. What's that? The year. Uh, Jerome died in 419. So we're talking 5th century. He's still—I mean, he's still two or three hundred years uh, separated from the actual events. But this is his understanding. Now we need to recognize that if this is in fact the case, as Jerome says, that it took place in an obscure period of time. It is a transition period. So it's again. It's a a time where we don't have a lot of information. It's difficult to say with any certainty. It's pretty obvious, I would guess, that the first bishops that we know of were the most eminent disciples of the apostles. For example, Clement and Polycarp and Papias and Ignatius all apparently knew the apostles. And so it's sort of logical that they would be the first bishops of local congregations. At any rate, that's a a fairly quick run-through. Let me uh, mention one other thing. By the mid-third century, there seems to be a whole series of officers in the church... We find that there are subdeacons, readers, acolyths, and precentors. Uh, Some of the larger churches by the middle of the third century had all of these sub officers. Just to tell you what they did the subdeacon was someone who assisted the deacons in their works of charity, the readers, well, they read scripture in the service. The acolytes, their basic job was to assist the bishop. And the precentors were the music directors. And you'll find early on the development in some churches of what is called an archdeacon. An archdeacon is someone who is a sort of... A, Counselor, advice, spiritual advisor, a confidant to the bishop, and we'll see uh, this uh, a very famous person was an archdeacon. We'll get to that a little later. So, the Ordines Minores, that is the minor orders, are these uh, later uh, offices in the early church by the mid third century. The Ordines Maiores. Those are the major orders that refers to the bishop, the presbyter or elder, and then finally the deacon. So that's just a Latin phrase that you'll find in the literature from time to time. Okay, that's some idea of the organization. And it lets you know that there is still uh, controversy about uh, the church organization.
0: This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.